Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to Seriously. It's sort of becoming a bit of a tradition that we start by reading out some of your thoughts, and that's what we're going to do today. So Rebecca McEwen sent us a lovely email. Rebecca's from Australia, and she said she discovered the podcast just before she came back to the UK in December, and she said she spent all my time on public transport catching up on the back episodes, so thank you for making a lot of long flights slash bus trips more endurable, and also for making me laugh like a mad woman in public. <laughs> so that's so nice, isn't it? I love the image of Rebecca just like sat on the bus being like, aha, enjoying in. She also says she'd like to recommend Elizabeth Peters's Amelia Peabody series, which sounds, Caroline, like your absolute dream. <laughs> I know. I, I, oh, I'm definitely going to read these books. So the series is basically a loving satire of slash homage to Victorian mystery adventure slash romance novels, a la Ryder Haggard, but featuring a spinster of independent means, her words, <laughs> who goes to Egypt on holiday and becomes an archaeologist. There are 19 books in total, jam-packed oh. with murder, mummies, mayhem, romance, and general fun they're also very feminist nuanced examinations of race and class in victorian england and egypt also so this i mean literally sounds so up your alley yeah it's this this could have been written for me thank you so much rebecca <laughs> i'm definitely and she, i think she also mentions that the audiobooks are good and i've got all of those you know the audible thing i've got all of those credits stacking up so i'm just going to use them all oh, on yeah these. you must that sounds great fun so we've also had a couple of submissions on our tumblr which is another way you can get in touch with us if you want to by the way the details of how to do it are on seriouslypod.com so someone has got in touch that way to recommend us Death in Paradise, which I don't think you've seen, have you, Anna? I haven't. No, no my parents are really into it. It's a jolly murder mystery set in the Caribbean. It's a classic setup. There's a murder, an investigation, with a nice summary board that they come back to in case you forget <laughs> the who, when, where, etc. Then the aha moment, after which they gather everyone in one room, Agatha Christie style, and all is revealed. Oh, this sounds so fun. Well, I think a general rule in life is if it's good enough for Caroline's parents, it's good enough for me. And anything with a Nick from what's it called, my family. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I've got one of my favourite anecdotes of all time is his, where he said, everyone was like, why did you leave my family? You were so funny. And he was like, my own auntie called me Nick, <laughs> which is not my name. And I was like, I have to leave this show. <laughs> <laughs> but he is Nick. I'm sorry. I know, his even on right. the BT adverts, you're like, Nick. <laughs> 
Is that his real name? His real name is Chris or something, isn't it? I don't know. It's not Nick. It's not Nick. Whatever. And then, yeah, also via Tumblr, someone gets in touch to uh, recommend us a really interesting sounding BBC drama that I kind of can't believe I didn't see at the time. It's called White Heat. It was from 2012. A six-parter that follows a group of seven friends and flatmates brought together by an enigmatic landlord in 1965. And then it follows their lives over subsequent episodes that are set in 1967, 73, 79, 82 and 90, all told as a flashback from the modern day when they've come together to clean out the old house following the death of one of the group such a good concept for a tv series i love this idea and as someone with an enigmatic landlord oh really i'm very interested <laughs> yeah so yeah white heat well so we're gonna check these out in the next few weeks and yeah do the same and let us know your thoughts yeah we'll add them to our ever-expanding list the first thing we wanted to talk about today is dr thorne which is an itv adaptation of an anthony trollope novel done by julian fellows it revolves around the romantic entanglements of mary thorne niece of the titular doctor who is played by tom hollander and is mostly about the difficulties of crossing class boundaries in the 19th century life birth lovers tragedy money charm beauty marriage money family love choice money science enemies luxury affection money privileges business respect money Honor, persecution, duty, money, regret, money, envy, money, 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 love. So I think the setup of this programme is like fairly ridiculous, mm-hmm. which is what kind of sets the tone for what comes later. Right at the beginning of this episode, right, we have Mary, who's 20. Like they keep emphasising that she's 20 years old. And one of the first things she does in this episode is after a sort of slightly awkward conversation where her girlfriends have been like, oh, well, you're clearly not as posh as us, Mary. Ha ha, you're of a lower rank. Ha ha. And she's like, oh, wait, really? She speaks to her uncle, who's Tom Hollander, and is like, by the way, uncle, who are my parents? <laughs> and you're like, you're 20 years old and you've never been interested in this before now. It's so silly. Yeah, I know. It's absurd. So she's really naive in one way in the sense that she's never bothered to ask why she doesn't live with her parents or anything. Mm. But on the other hand, it's sort of implied that she's getting on a bit and should probably get married soon. Yeah, exactly. She's both too old and too young. It's weird. There's a fantastic phrase in this from Rebecca Front, who plays the mother of the sort of person that Mary is flirting with, mm. who is supposedly of higher rank. And she she says being close at 12 is very different to being close at 20 she gets like very <laughs> upset about their ages and the flirting between them yeah so the whole thing is your classic period drama fodder in the sense that it is about minute class differences in the english upper classes mm-hmm. in the 19th century mm-hmm. and a lot of it revolves around who's going to marry whom and who has a fortune and who's going to do what you know it's yeah, pride it's and prejudice marriages and wills yeah pride and prejudices type stuff and dr thorne tom hollander is the guardian for this kind of awful aristocrat who also owns the estate on which they all live. Yeah, it's very weird. And the awful aristocrat turns up and sort of starts to try and call in debts from people out of spite and he's really drunk all the time. And they do this really weird thing where the camera angles are all filmed from like knee height. When it cuts to him, it kind of wobbles a bit to show that he's drunk. He's drunk, yeah, yeah. It's so so terrible. Yeah, I mean, I think I have, have you read the original book? I haven't read this one. I've read a couple of others in the same series because it's part of a whole like the Chronicles of Barsetshire they're called yeah, as a yeah. whole series are they this overblown and hammy no right so if they they've diverted from the source material somewhat totally yeah. they're very funny Trollope novels but mm-hmm. in that approaching Austen style like understated way yeah I, th- this is not so delicate 
I also, I actually was introduced to this episode by watching it via Gogglebox <laughs> and the reactions of everyone on Gogglebox, which for people who don't know is a program where they film the reactions of people watching TV and you watch them watch TV every week and you get to know them really, really well. Mm. But the reactions of everyone on Gogglebox like really shows how hammy it is because like all of them were like, oh, no, she didn't. Like, <laughs> yeah, they were like all so like, it's like this is ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. It's so overblown. That is probably the thing I liked best about it. Yeah, it is totally absurd in a very Julian Fellowsy way in the sense that he's never been one to go for the subtle rapier when you could smash something with a sledgehammer. Exactly, which is why I hate so much this idea that Julian Fellows is some like auteur. I know, I really wanted to say to any of our American listeners who, because of the fact that people in America keep inexplicably giving him awards for writing television somehow I feel like there's this perception that Julian Fellows is this great writer Downton Abbey, the bits of it that were good see our previous episode on this for further discussion of this was an anomaly yeah. other things written by Julian <laughs> Fellows are like Dr Thorne yes but also uh, Dr Thorne is like Downton Abbey but like the worst bits of Downton Abbey yeah that's Abbey. what I mean yeah. it's like all the crazy like oh someone's just been mown down by a car out of nowhere and like someone else is disowning their sister over the way she held a fork like <laughs> it's all so crazy but I think with Julian Fellows you have to be like I'm here for the lols yeah I'm not course. here for the high art which is yeah part of our frustration so American listeners even though it's not your personal fault we're going to blame you anyway on behalf of the Golden Globes because it's ridiculous but yeah I love the most overblown bits of this which were excellently done by Rebecca Front yes she's really good in it she's hilarious you said to me the other day that Rebecca Front has now been elevated to Catherine de Bourgh status and (laughs) that's exactly what she is in this (laughs) she's so young to be in the like spinstery old angry woman mode she's like any of the mums from Pride and Prejudice or you know just like put them in a bonnet and a sort of severe face of makeup and suddenly they're supposed to be like six yeah and her sister is played by phoebe nichols and they sort of make this like fantastically scheming pair of like older women determined to marry off all their offspring in exactly the right way and they sort of simper to the correct people and like cast down you know the undesirables as it were and it's really funny to watch even if it is utterly unbelievable and there's quite a lot of kind of um, disingenuous social climbing going on Mm -hmm. you know she responds to an obviously pointed question about her family's money. You know, did you do the season last year then? I.e., could you afford to? She's like, no, we did not get up to London. It's, <laughs> it's just so pointed all the time. That was really funny. Yeah. And I really like how when they've got extra characters coming in. So, for example, here's the man with a fortune that her daughters should be married to, but is not very attractive. Instead of bringing in someone who over time you just realise is really annoying, they might as well have a comedy trumpet going like... Bruh. like he comes in he's overweight he's got like a terrible beard he like says all the wrong things he's got the wrong accent like he has to be the complete caricature of like everything that could be wrong with a potential husband but with money there can't be any room for nuance or subtlety at all yeah same goes for when and you know spoiler alert the heir the one who's trying to collect all the debts dies (laughs) he dies in the most ridiculous way possible (laughs) reminded me of the car accident death from Downton Abbey actually because he's like drunk in charge of of a horse which I'm pretty sure is like a 19th century crime he's riding through the woods and then he gets smashed off his horse by a branch oh, God, and falls on the ground and then he isn't very well and then he's lying in bed blood sort of pointlessly coming out of his face it's... making sincere apologies for the ways he's treated women yeah. in the past and then he dies <laughs> it's so bad I really feel like the ridiculousness of this programme can be summed up in the following sentence Dr Thorne is a TV show in which Tom Hollander plays the straight man yep <laughs> I know <laughs> like he is the moral 
are all center and like you know conscious of this entire program he's the one saying all the right things and you're like this is crazy I know as we discussed when we talked about the night manager a couple of weeks ago Tom Hollander is at his best in stuff like Le Carre and The Thick of It where he's the bad guy he's, he's just like true or insane he's, he's, yeah. he's got a real skill for just like playing really camp really weird vaguely sinister characters or, and in this he's... or have you seen Rev I haven't seen Rev oh no I love Rev maybe I should recommend you that at some point because um, in Rev he's not evil as such you know he's a he's a vicar in an inner city church trying to do the right thing mm. but the whole point of that character is that he's weak mm. and that he's constantly forced by circumstance to compromise and compromise and compromise until his original motive is nowhere to be found mm. and he does that really well as well yeah I'm sure he is it's just so funny to see him in a role that's yeah. just like soft and cuddly yeah this is a role for like Matthew McFadden or Edward Fox or someone like that oh, yeah, someone yeah. who embodies moral rectitude on screen <laughs> not Tom Hollander who every time I glanced away from the screen and could just hear his voice I assumed I would look back and see him shouting at Malcolm Tucker <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah it is really funny so the costumes in this are kind of weird as well because they've obviously spent a lot of money on this adaptation you know mm. I'm pretty sure that when ITV decide to do a period adaptation with Julian Fellows these days the money rolls no in spared. but all of the colours in it are weird so you mentioned Rebecca Front's sister's mm. character she's just constantly wearing bright pink yeah and has like a really harsh haircut so yeah. that you know that she's a bit suspect <laughs> yeah so everything about these characters is like writ large on their clothes it's so funny so like first shot we see of Mary who's our like innocent virtuous heroine. but slightly down on her luck heroine she's like it's like lace over lace over lace over lace white lace you know she yeah. looks virginial bridal but like not over the top and she's mm. got like a big bonnet on but it's not like covered in flowers like everyone else she sat around is sort of wearing flower crowns it, yes all the time all the other women are just wearing like flower crowns like they're at a festival in 2013 it's yeah, weird with like yellow and pink and blue and like all these different colours and then Mary it's like oh I'm just a poor girl from a poor family flat as eyelashes <laughs> in my white dress <laughs> just seeps its way into like every aspect of the, of the programme mm. like you want her to be a bitch make sure she's got a ridiculous flower in the middle of her head and also all her looks to the camera must be evil <laughs> it's yeah it's, it's really ridiculous so given all that are you going to keep watching it I mean I'm not going to go out of my way to watch this but I think if it was on on a Sunday night and you know I was just kind of like mooching around at home I would put it on have my fair share of my lols <laughs> maybe do some angry tweets and then go to my bed <laughs> yeah that's exactly what this program's for isn't it yeah but I don't think apart from that I'll be you know I'm not going to be catching up on iPlayer anytime one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh, it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. So this week on the New Statesman website, our day jobs, (laughs) we hosted Female Friendship Week, five days of articles dedicated to celebrating and examining relationships between people who identify as women. So we wanted to chat about a few of our favourites from that. So I think the first piece that went up as part of this week looking at friendships between women was one by Emily Reynolds about female friendships in the TV programmes we all know and love, like Broad City, which we've talked about on the podcast before, also Sex in the City. Those friendships that are like portrayed as so unbelievably close and they're with each other all the time and everything's always perfect in their friendships um, and whether or not that kind of makes us feel insecure about our own less than perfect friendships. Yeah, I really identified with what Emily was saying in this piece, actually, because even as I was reading it, I was like counting back in my head at how many times I've seen a woman who I'm supposedly incredibly close friends with, I am incredibly close friends with, mm-hmm. this year, and I came up with like four times. But Abby and Alana in Broad City see each other like more than once a day. <laughs> yeah, they don't seem to have like many other friends that they're not like mutual friends mm. with. It's like whatever social activity they're doing, they do it sort of together and everything else in their lives takes a bit of a backseat. Their jobs, boyfriends are sort of fairly disposable in comparison, even though Lincoln, Alana's boyfriend, has been in it from the beginning. But he also seems totally fine with the fact that he's basically number two in her life. Yeah, he's yeah. a pretty chill guy. I mean, I love Lincoln as a mm. character, but yeah, he's he's relaxed about it. And there's almost like no real pressures on their friendship from any other people or any mm. any other commitments. And that's just not how it's real not life feasible. works. Yeah. yeah, it's not feasible. So it was a really interesting piece. And I think one of the things that she points out really well is like, we just don't have the same reaction to like rom-coms and stuff about our romantic relationships. Mm. You would never be like, my relationship isn't like the ones in the movies, so it must be bad. You'd be like, well, those are Hollywood stereotypes. It doesn't matter. And I think maybe that's because these programs are so good at portraying everything else about women's lives and they are often so accurate. You sort of have higher expectations of them and you think, oh, well, it's so close to my experience in so many ways. Why don't I have that one friend who's always, always there with me? Yeah, it's so interesting, actually, that we've kind of internalised the idea that Hollywood version of love is a fiction Mm. we're just totally okay with that Mm -hmm. but we still think that hollywood's or pop culture more generally's version of friendship must be fact yeah exactly it's so weird yeah so another one of the pieces that we've had as part of female friendship week and actually my favorite one is by eleanor margolis it's about how the guise of friendship is used to sort of stand in for lesbian relationships two women will be depicted on screen in books etc as being just really close friends when you the viewer and they the performer all seem to know that what they're portraying is a romantic relationship but we're not ready for that or something so it has to be hidden it's somewhere between like euphemistic and just a straight outright erasure of a lesbian relationship it kind of hovers somewhere between the two and we were thinking about it in the office weren't we because um stephanie our colleague brought up that in 
the autobiography of Alice Toklas, which is actually written by Gertrude Stein. Mm. I mean, Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas were in a relationship for most of their life. And in the introduction to that autobiography, they're referred to as basically like good pals. Yeah. <laughs> Dear pals over all of their life, you know. And it's so frustrating. I'm, I mean, you're frustrated on their behalf, but also just like as a reader that we can't just be like, they were a couple. And like this whole rhetoric around how women have really, really intense female friendships that are basically lesbian relationships but without the sex also kind of undermines lesbian relationships because you're like no it's she's not my friend yeah. <laughs> she's more than my friend another piece we had simran's piece actually quoted a line from francis ha about this mm-hmm. where greta gerwig's character characterizes her extremely close friendship with another woman as it's like a long-standing lesbian relationship where we don't have sex anymore yeah exactly like we're basically we're like a married lesbian couple yeah it's like no you're not you're just two women who are friends exactly and And that's not to belittle that it's just to say it's a different kind of relationship exactly it's a different experience and i think it's especially irritating given that there are all these stereotypes around like lesbian relationships Mm -hmm. and it's like lesbian bed death or whatever it's called where after a while lesbians stop having sex and it's just like their best mates which is obviously a complete stereotype and utterly unrepresentative of most people's sort of lesbian relationships there's like a blending of close friendship and actual lesbian relationships that is just i imagine extremely frustrating if you're like an actual lesbian like trying to emphasize how important your relationship is to you but yeah that was a great piece from eleanor so you've also written something yeah friendship week (laughs) i have i've got a very close friend who i often i think mention on the podcast sort of obliquely and together we wrote up just some like random memories from our friendship which was actually a really exposing like experience to do because although i like chat about her all the time it's quite different when you have to like put it into words and like send it to her Mm. to look over so we both wrote our bits and then sent them to each other and it was quite emotional but really like weirdly rewarding i was really nervous it's it's funny it's a bit like i don't know if you write someone a really like emotional birthday card or something even though you think about them all the time in certain ways you don't necessarily always tell them and it's like oh this it's, is really exposing and terrible it's sort of something that i'm just i'm newly in a long distance relationship and like you have to write stuff down all the time oh god in a way that you don't when the person you're going out with like lives near you exactly like, stuff that you would not stress about having just saying to them yeah you have to see it written down because that's mostly how you communicate it's suddenly so much more formal. it's suddenly so much more formal i know it's often seen as almost stereotypical but because we do have one of those very intense we've been friends since we were 11 we did all the hormonal teenage stuff together we have had so many vicious vicious arguments Mm. and like i was so worried when she sent me her memories that they were all going to be completely horrific and terrible (laughs) i was just like oh my god the world is going to see me for the bitch that i truly am and i'm not ready for that and actually the ones she sent me were really nice (laughs) so it's so funny because yeah it's just a really truly terrifying experience that's out there in the world for people to to read terrifyingly that's part of what's been really good about this week which i should say anna is totally organized i've had minimal to do with this just the process of writing about friendship is difficult in itself it is and i think people i mean all the contributors did such a good job of writing about it especially when these things can be personal like emily's piece about friendship goals and things like that but i think although everyone's experience is individual And the idea of, like, describing one particular type of female friendship is never going to be accurate because each two people's 
relationship is going to be so different. There is something so relatable about all the pieces in mm. their in their variety, which was really interesting to me reading them all. So Caroline, do you want to talk about your take on Female Friendship Week? Yeah, so I've written about what happens when a friendship ends. Mm. The incident that I sort of described, that a friendship ended kind of against my will and or sort of without my knowledge in the sense that I had been part of a group of best friends. I came into school one day and just one of them wasn't talking to me. It wasn't like an adult situation where she could just not make plans to see me. We still had all our lessons together. We were still in the same form. We still saw each other for like six hours a day for four years but she never spoke to me that's so different to ghosting in a way because ghosting is passive and it's just like yeah. i'm just gonna not do no anything. she made a very active decision to pretend i didn't exist yeah this is aggressive ignoring quick yeah. it wasn't even like over a weekend it was like monday to tuesday or something say goodbye to her after school on monday tuesday she wasn't talking to me wow and the weirdest thing is just to spoil my own piece there is that by the time so by the time we were in sixth form so i think by the time we were like 18 or something she did finally start talking to me again in a very kind of polite, civil, not friends, but acquaintance, perfectly mm -hmm. okay. And I did eventually bite the bullet and ask her what why, happened. and she couldn't remember. And I believe her when she said, I genuinely can't remember. Oh my God. I believe her. That's so funny. Like, the, whatever it was, whatever you did, Caroline, you know, presumably yeah. nothing at all. Well, I probably did something. It might not have but been yeah, that but bad, very but trivial. I did something irritating, obviously. And then to think that this, your own stubbornness could get in the way of basically being like, oh God, I can't even remember what this was anymore. Should we just forget about it? But I think what happened was that, yeah, so she was being stubborn about not forgetting it. And also, I was just so abjectly in playing the part of not victim but kind of like she she decided i was invisible so i was invisible yeah so i didn't so you kind of played up to the invisibility. exactly so i didn't ever give her an impression that i would be open to stopping this yeah i and think neither of you true. decided to have that confrontation no. and it i obviously didn't give off the impression that i was open to even talking about it mm. so she didn't mm. And years went by. I mean, these things do happen. I think at that age where things can be so sort of competitive between... I mean, girls are encouraged to feel competitive yeah. towards each other by society. And it can just make for some really bad arguments <laughs> that nobody needs. It does. And I think it also, looking back on what happened, it sort of fed into this this idea that girls have these... I played up to it, obviously, but I think everyone around us did as well, including the teachers. At no point did any of them like sit us down and be like, you guys are fighting. What's Talk about it. Here? What is going on? Yeah. They, they girls just, will be girls. It was girls will be girls. Girls have these intense friendship entanglements where they fall in and out of friend love with each other. It's like, no, they don't. That's, like, that's you know, yeah, that's clearly we just need a grown-up to tell us to grow up. Yeah. And no one did. This idea that, like arguing is just part of female friendship in a way that it's not part of male friendship is like really destructive yeah it doesn't help anyone involved <laughs> and I, I still think about her. i probably think about her more than i do about people i remained friends with through yeah. school so intense was the experience yeah. of not being her friend um it's like when you think you see an ex on the tube yeah even though you haven't spoken to them in four years and then they look nothing like your ex when you actually focus in mm. it's that weird like ghost memory of a person yeah. that really haunts you the funny thing about a lot of the pieces over the week was that they're sort of simultaneously pretty positive with like an undercut of like bitterness or jealousy or fear 
And one of the pieces that did this so well was Ellie Rousel's piece. Mm. And Ellie is the lead singer of the band Wolf Alice. They're a great band. Get involved. Give them a listen. They've got a song called Bros, which is about a really close friendship that Ellie had growing up at school, which you should all listen to. It's amazing. And she wrote a piece for us sort of describing the friendship behind that. And in her piece, she was like, I'm not really one to write really overly positive lyrics. And you can hear in the song my fear of losing my friend and that's Mm. just always been present and especially when you've got friends as a teenager and part of being teenagers like experiencing so much change so quickly and being so afraid of becoming an adult and one of those fears of becoming an adult is is losing your close friendships that you have as a teenager so she wrote an excellent piece that sort of makes reference to heavenly creatures the movie and it's just so excellent as a portrait of like what it's like as a teenage girl to have that friend that you love so much but you're also weirdly sort of frightened of you're sort of frightened of and uh, like you said you feel like you're in competition with and you just feel very complicated towards in a way that because if you think you know at the age that ellie's describing your major relationships are probably with your immediate family slash carers mm-hmm. and then said friend so it's the most complicated relationship in your life yeah definitely and it's because also it's occurring at the most complicated time in your life probably i mean not everyone has a a difficult teenage experience but i think most people i know certainly did Mm. so yeah i think those were my main favorites from the week but we've had so many good ones and i'd love it if you guys just gave them a read so we'll put them all in the show notes and get in touch with us if you liked them didn't like them have any thoughts and also, if you have any crazy friendship stories, yeah. did, did you have a friend who pretended you were invisible for four <laughs> years? Please tell me so I feel less alone. <laughs> we want the gossip. So last week I recommended that Caroline try An Awesome Wave, the debut album from the British band Alt-J. Released in 2012, it won that year's Mercury Prize and saw the group gain mainstream success. So Caroline, what did you think of An Awesome Wave? I really liked it. Oh good. I was quite surprised by it though, because I think as we said last week, I knew a couple of the singles from the album, I think, and we saw them at the Latitude Festival together last summer. But I, for some reason, wasn't expecting it to be kind of as sad as it is. I think (laughs) I was expecting it to be more sort of like happy sunny unambiguous and that i think is massively in its favor that it's not but so that was a bit of a surprise i think it's kind of a mix of both isn't it because it's often like quite jangly and like fairly upbeat tempo wise music but the lyrics are pretty yeah not happy yeah quite quite downbeat in places Mm. i also thought that it worked really well as an album i agree like i was really surprised and pleased by that that it really rewarded a full listen rather Mm -hmm. than like dipping in and out another observation i had which you're going to say this is very stereotypically me but the harmonies and the singing are really good 
Oh, that is so you. <laughs> so, so the bit, so I'm thinking particularly actually of the second song on the album, straight after the intro, The Ripe and Ruin. Yeah, it's sort of like, an, I think it's billed as like an interlude. Yeah. Like they have a few songs on this record that are like maybe a minute, 30 seconds even. Some have vocals, some don't. And mm. they're sort of like, yeah, like interludes between the actual quote marks songs on yeah. the record. Yeah, and this one in particular just stood out to me because it's got some a cappella singing in it that is really, mm-hmm. really good and that I really like. She, 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 she only ever, far, 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 wants to, to count, count her steps. Eighteen teeth right and she stops to abide by the law that she herself has set. That eighteen steps is one complete set And before the next nine right and nine left She looks up up at the blue And whispers to all of the above Don't let me drown the kind of band I thought Alt-J were before I listened to this don't really bother with. There's um, a review of this album that I really liked by Laura Snapes in Pitchfork. She didn't like the album at all, but I think she makes some good points about the fact that it's quite a messy album. Like they've mm. they've overstuffed it with like lots of different sounds and different genres. But I still quite liked that. One of the points she makes is that it's frustrating. This is This is a review from the time in 2012. Mm. She felt frustrated that they were being billed as like the new Radiohead. Oh yeah, I remember that. And I think that was actually why I didn't really get involved at the time. Mm. Because I found the sort of, I mean, I'm sure it's not their fault, but I found the marketing around them annoying. Yeah, and I think as we end up saying so often on Seriously, so sorry for repeating myself, but it's frustrating when something that's really good and quite poppy and quite mainstream gets billed as something really edgy and really Mm. like original and new and you're like well it's not that but I still really like it so can you not put me off exactly most recently in the case of the 1975 exactly Exactly. the same great pop songs stop being a tortured artist Matt Healy exactly and I think the problem sometimes with Alt-J is that people are like oh yeah like obviously they won the Mercury Awards they got loads of critical success Mm. for you know basically being weird and innovative and actually this record is perhaps not that innovative but that doesn't mean that it's a bad record. No, well, it reminds me in parts of a band that I listened to a lot when I was at university called Mr. Hudson and the Library, mm-hmm. which is quite similar musically, kind of um, slightly indie, quite a lot of electronic sounds, um, quite a lot of kind of heavy beats and then sort of ethereal vocals in between. Yeah, it's, sure. It's, it's a similar kind of I thing. I get that vibe. That was in like 2008. Mm, I exactly. was really into that band. So. Yeah, I, I say all this deep in the knowledge that I really like this album mm. and that I find it just like a really sort of soothing and nice listen. And although, yeah, like we said, lyrically it is, you know, dark at times. There are songs on there like Tarot and even Breeze Blocks, which is like lyrically super dark, mm. that I still find weirdly energizing and like invigorating i when found I the whole thing really energizing actually i was listening to it i was walking to work yeah. and yeah i found it very kind of unexpectedly uplifting yeah for doing that so did you have any favorite tracks oh matilda um i love matilda <laughs> yeah that's such a great song Yeah, and I, as I said last week, I'm just getting so many like vibes from when I used to listen to this album when in back in 2012, four years ago. Mm. And actually, I remember that one being really good at Latitude. Yeah, yeah. I think the fan favorite is Taro okay. at their gigs because they they have this like long instrumental bit, and then everyone can go, "Hey, Taro!" <laughs> <all> together. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't get what any of it means. I'll say that. 
none of the lyrics really make a huge amount of no, sense. No, they to don't. Me. Also, he doesn't have the greatest diction, so a lot of the time you can't tell what he's saying. Yeah, he's got a very weird sort of affected way of singing. But I just love it. It's not even a guilty pleasure because we don't do guilty pleasures. No, I'm seriously. It's just a I pleasure. just love it. So for next week, I'm going to give you a book. Whoa, books. <laughs> time spent reading. <laughs> and this is a book that I read relatively recently and have become pretty obsessed by. It's called The Magicians by Lev Grossman. Okay, cool. Now, I know Lev started out as a Harry Potter fan fiction writer. Oh, is that true? Oh my god, like so many great writers yeah, we've so, been discovering lately. So this has it has parallels with um, Rainbow Rolls Carry On and mm-hmm. various other things we've talked about. Oh my god, it sounds so up my alley. But rather than focusing on the sort of secondary magical education, it focuses on tertiary magical education. So it's about a group of young people who go to magic college in Brooklyn. <laughs> I love this. This is if Harry Potter had the ending of the new 21 Jump Street where the guy is like to Channing Tatum and not Channing Tatum, who cares? You're going to college! And they're like, <laughs> as the ending of that movie. This is like that. This is, yeah. Harry, you're a going to college. <laughs> yeah, and you're going to college in upstate New York. Oh, that's brilliant. Love it. I love it already. I will just say also that for fans of Narnia, there's a kind of Narnia angle to it as well. Oh, well, I did read all the Narnia books as a kid, so maybe it will stir some Narnia memories. You'll definitely recognise the Narnia bits, even if you weren't, as I was, a diehard Narnia fan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sounds brilliant. Thanks so much, Caroline. I look forward to reading it. Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Seriously. All you have to do is search SRSLY in iTunes or any other podcasting app you use. While you're there, it would be really great if you could leave us an iTunes review as it helps other people find the show. We also rely on you listeners for your recommendations. So if you want to tell us what you thought about something or if you've got something we should watch, you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, via email. All the details are on seriouslypodcast.com. If you like, you can also recommend us to your friends, family, neighbours, strangers. Let them know that you like the podcast and they should be listening to it too. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.